Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. This is Ryan Tripp. I'm here on New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, we're here with Professor Saul Cornell. He is the Paul and uh, Diane Gunther Chair in American History at Fordham University, along with uh, Jerry Leonard. He published earlier this year, The Partisan Republic, Democracy, Exclusion, and the Fall of the Founders' Constitution, 1780s to the 1830s again out earlier this year by Cambridge University Press. Welcome to the show, Professor Cornell. Well, thank you so much for having me. So before we dive into the questions, let's talk a little bit about the cover and your input into the cover selection. So the cover is a political cartoon from the constitutional ratification debate. And there aren't that many good cartoons from this period. You know, we have a lot of great cartoons from the American Revolution because you have the full attention of uh engravers in London. But basically, uh, there are very few good political cartoons between uh, 1787 and the early Jacksonian period. Once again, things uh, pick up in the Jacksonian period, and we have all those great political cartoons that we uh, see around the bank war and things like that. So it's actually quite hard to find something visual for this for this topic. This one, uh, it, called The Looking Glass of, for 1787, is really quite rich. And it essentially shows uh, a group of anti-federalists and federalists each trying to pull the state of Connecticut out of its um, muck. It's sort of stuck in the mud. And what you have is the federalists trying to pull Connecticut, which of course is weighted down with paper money in that particular uh, wagon, towards a bright, sunny future. And of course, the anti-federalists are pulling it in a direction that's covered by clouds and storms and looks quite dark. And then you have a variety of interesting characters uh, in the in the foreground who are arguing and debating. You see plows. You actually see something rather scatological going on on the anti-federalist side, a kind of typical 18th century uh, Grub Street lowbrow humor. But I think it's a great, uh, it's a great political cartoon because it really captures uh, the fundamental tension over the Constitution that, that Federalists and Anti-Federalists really were looking towards different visions of the American future. Now, I know you're a professor of history, but you're also an adjunct of the law school. What prompted you to research and write this book with law professor Jerry Leonard? So as historians, we like to talk about proximate causes and long-term causes. So the the proximate cause was that Jerry Leonard and I had written an essay in the Cambridge History of Law in America. It's a three-volume comprehensive effort to synthesize uh, American legal and constitutional history. And several contributors to that volume were asked by the editors, Michael Grossberg and Chris Tomlins, to expand their uh, their essays into full-length but short and, and, and effective for the classroom in particular, short synthetic studies that could be teachable. And so since we both had long-term research interests in this area, and since there really is no good synthesis 
of constitutional development in this period, and particularly no good synthesis that aims to tell the traditional top-down, martial court, court-centered narrative, but still uh, acknowledge the very, very vital role of constitutional ideas outside of the courts and of popular constitutionalism and of the way that the rise of partisanship affects constitutional developments. We thought this was a good opportunity uh, to work together. We had a good time working together on the essay. Of course, trying to write a book together uh, as opposed to writing a book chapter poses many, many more uh, challenges to an author team in terms of framing the narrative and uh, trying to find a common voice as you, as, as you put, pull this together into a final book. What were the 1780s socioeconomic changes and rebellions that precipitated concerns about deficiencies in the Articles Confederation? In addition, what was James Madison's bicameral Virginia plan vis-a-vis the oppositional New Jersey plan? So going back to the cover image, clearly uh, you have serious socioeconomic dislocation after the American Revolution. You have inflation. You have British ports being closed to American shipping. You have the British dumping goods. And then, of course, you have the incredible cost of paying the revolution. And many, many states, uh, paper money is a classic economic technique for stimulating the economy. If, however, the production of paper money gets too far ahead of uh, and too much money enters the system, you can have a kind of runaway inflation, which of course is not good for the economy. And this, of course, was happening in places like Rhode Island, where they were passing tender laws that said you had to accept uh, debts paid off in this paper money that was worth a fraction of what the original debt uh, incurred required. So there's a lot going on in terms of socioeconomic dislocation. And this prompts many, many people, uh, James Madison among them, to think that we really need to do something about uh, the American uh, economic and political future. And a key to that will be replacing the very weak Articles of Confederation with a stronger government that has the power to do things like tax. I mean, just imagine what it'd be like if paying your taxes was optional. Uh, On the Articles of Confederation, the states are supposed to be requisitioned for payments to the Confederation government, but the Articles does not have the power to tax. And that is uh, one of the most fundamental powers any government can have. And it's lacking in this first effort to frame a constitution for the United States of America. How did the Great Compromise focus attention on what would become the Three-Fifths Compromise, which advanced, quoting you, a founding ambivalence about slavery, but also the de facto power of the slaveholding interests? And what about the slave trade ban and debates over the executive and federal judiciary? Well, the, the convention brings together this remarkable collection of members of the American elite. It's a very talented group of people. And they have a lot of problems they need to solve. They have the economic problems that we just talked about. They have the fundamental tension between large states like Virginia uh, and small states like New Jersey or Maryland. And one of the first uh, and most important uh, potential conflicts that could derail this effort to frame uh, an improvement uh, of course, they originally wanted to revise the Articles of Confederation, but Madison and his colleagues in Virginia um, take a bold move and suggest that we need to scrap the Articles of Confederation 
and embark on a much more bold and ambitious plan for constitutional reform. So a very big question lingering in the air is, will they continue with one state, one vote as the articles prescribed, or will they recognize that there needs to be some accounting for population so that populous states like Virginia, New York, Pennsylvania uh, will have their interests more fully represented? And once you start talking about um, uh, more than one state, one vote, once you start talking about representation based on the number of persons, that raises the thorny question of what are you going to do about slavery? And ultimately, they come to a compromise, the, the so-called three-fifths compromise, where slaves will be counted as three-fifths of a person for purposes of legislative apportionment, but also for taxation purposes. The magic number three-fifths came from an earlier compromise in, during the Articles of Confederation. There's nothing really magical about that number. Uh, but there are other important uh, issues about slavery that come up. You have to figure out about the slave trade and the compromise is that the slave trade will be allowed to continue, but uh, they they settle upon a date for ending the slave trade. But it is very clear that although the word slavery is is not in the text of the Constitution, there are many ways in which the Constitution provides at least tacit support for the institution of slavery. Um, most importantly, in the way that it clearly protects property rights. So for if you are a slaveholder reading the Constitution, you will have very little to fear that your rights and property will be challenged in any uh, significant fashion. At the same time, if you're uncomfortable with slavery, you can at least look at this Constitution and say, well, it doesn't really mention slavery, so I'm not you know, agreeing to support a government that's premised on slavery. So th they are very, very uh, – depending on your uh, point of view, I suppose, you either say they were quite brilliant and clever or you can say they were um, studied in their ambiguity and providing fairly strong but tacit support for the institution of slavery. How and why did Alexander Hamilton attempt to emulate a British fiscal military state in his variant of what he described as Republican theory? Also, how did debates over his bank engender disagreements over, quote, the meaning of the Constitution and the appropriate methods for interpreting it, unquote? In your response, if possible, please try to address challenges posed by both John Taylor and William Manning, the uh, early 1790s shifts in Madisonian perspectives, Democratic Republican societies, and even, if, if possible, uh, th those whiskey radicals. So we've talked a little about Madison's um, desire to put the new constitution on a on a proper foundation in terms of being a genuinely representative government so that uh, apportionment will reflect population. Alexander Hamilton has a very different agenda going into the Constitutional Convention. His main concern is that the American nation state is not going to survive uh, when it has to face uh, the world that the European uh, community has created, and that only if America begins to emulate uh, the uh, the British model, this fiscal military state that Britain had created, would American republicanism, would American independence survive? So, of course, Hamilton famously has a whole series of proposals about how to put the American economy on a firm footing and how to win over economic interests uh, 
to support the new government and bind them to the government. And his proposal for a national bank is a key part of that program. But that is a point in the debate, the emerging debates over what the Constitution means and what the future of America will hold, where you start to see the clearest um, statements that we need to do something about this Hamiltonian uh, fiscal military state that's emerging. We need to do something to prevent Hamilton from implementing his agenda. And so in addition to the quite practical issues about whether uh, chartering a bank uh, is a good idea, you have a whole series of issues about whether it's constitutional or not. And although from the very beginning, there have been a, a number of minor debates about constitutional interpretation, you know, when you when the president appoints an office or with the advised consent of the Senate, does that mean he can fire that person without their advice consent? So that's an earlier debate where you're interpreting the Constitution. But the first really big and controversial debate that really uh, spills well beyond the halls of Congress uh, is the debate over the bank. And this is where we get the two very different theories of constitutional interpretation, so-called strict construction, which Jefferson favors, where which looks at the Constitution and and, and reads it in a very, very narrow way. And Hamilton's so-called broader latitudinarian construction, uh, in which if the power is given to the new government, the means by which that power can be effectuated uh, is is left open to Congress. And, and, and so you have two very, very different views of how to interpret the Constitution. And some of the characters you mentioned, like John Taylor, who's in a Southern agrarian, who definitely sees the events of the 1790s in terms of that traditional divide between court and country and the rise of this fiscal uh, military state that that is going to use corruption to advance its agenda. And then William Manning, who who's a tavern keeper from Massachusetts, who's reading the newspapers of the day, who formulates a very populist uh, view of of constitutional debates and wants to see laboring people and and working people have a greater voice in the new American Republic and believes that the constitution in in a metaphor, colorful metaphor he chose was a fiddle, but the the fiddle was created by federalists so that they could play any tune on it that they wished. Uh, In addition, you have, you know, you have now the uh, French Revolution injecting that kind of turmoil into American politics. And Finally, the tax to pay for this fiscal military state that Hamilton envisions, one of the most important taxes falls on the the producers of whiskey. And in Kentucky and and Pennsylvania, Americans who have fought a revolution against excessive taxation suddenly find themselves being taxed by this federalist government and take up arms and, and invoke the kinds of ideas and practices that were typical during the revolution, including tarring and feathering and uh, erecting liberty poles. And to, it's a real crisis moment. And had it been handled uh, in a different fashion, one might have seen much more violence, much more bloodshed, and possibly a very different trajectory for the, for the evolution of American political and constitutional development. Please briefly discuss the roles of chattel slaves and women vis-a-vis the federal constitution. Also, how did Jay's treaty as well as the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions generate conflicts over nullification and limits to constitutionalism? And what was the significance and insignificance for the election of 1800? So the 1790s uh, 
is a period where the Constitution is being implemented, and there are very different views about how to preserve the Constitution, protect it from 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 becoming corrupt, how to how to achieve the vision of republicanism that is supposedly animating the Constitution. Uh, but this is largely a debate occurring among white men, uh, and although there are some stirrings of abolitionist sentiment and uh, some changes in in gender norms and ideas about women's proper role in this new republic, uh, there is there is not any direct assault on the very gendered idea of citizenship, which is exclusionary both as to race and gender, by and large. Um, and, and, and that's an important point to understand, because there are ideas floating around at the time that are at least going to provide a foundation for criticizing uh, those exclusions, but they are not yet as fully developed as they would be a, a century later. And we don't have the kind of radical abolitionist movement that will transform so much of American political and constitutional thought that is something that is well down the road. Now, um, you have, again, America not living in isolation, dealing with the increasing tensions between Britain and France. And so you have conflicts over John Jay's uh, treaty, uh, which many feel is negotiated with the British and gives them almost everything and gains very little for America, although it's it's fair to say that Jay didn't have a lot of negotiating power. The British were in a much superior position at that moment. And then, of course, in response to the unrest of the French Revolution and, and immigration into America from places where the French Revolution is stoking political passions, um, you have the, the passage of a series of alien acts designed to uh, give the federal government much more power and restrict immigration into the United States, and also the passage of a Sedition Act, which effectively uh, gives the federal government vast powers to punish people who criticize that government. And Federalists and this emerging Jeffersonian opposition see these events in, in radically different ways. And essentially, the so-called checks and balances that were supposed to protect Americans and protect the constitutional order from ever arriving at a crisis simply do not resolve the issue. And that's why you have Jefferson and Madison thinking and acting outside of the, the prescribed modes of, of redress for grievances within the Constitution and coming up with these ideas articulated in these two resolutions, one introduced in the Virginia legislature, the other in the Kentucky legislature, which really be begins a whole new chapter in American constitutional development. It takes the sort of incohate ideas of states' rights that are kicking around from anti-federalism and the original debates over ratification and really starts to form them into a theory of states' rights. And one variant of that theory includes an idea of state nullification of federal law. And of course, that will become a major uh, part of, of, of constitutional debates in the next century. What do you mean by majoritarian approach and federalist legalism? And how did the Judiciary Acts, as well as the 1803 Marbury v. Madison and Stewart v. Laird cases, reconfigure or not reconfigure the federal judiciary? 
In your response, please be sure to address judicial impeachments and post-1803 case law that substantiated and challenged judicial review. So Jefferson wins uh, in the contentious election of 1800, which, of course, uh, he's tied with Burr and there's all kinds of political machinations and it's not at all clear who's going to emerge victorious. Deals are made and assurances provided and Jefferson does emerge as the new president and we do get a peaceful transfer of power, which is quite remarkable given the level of political animus in the 1790s and the contested nature of the election of 1800. So we now have two of the branches of the government uh, out of Federalist control, but the one branch that remains in Federalist control is the judiciary. And what we see uh, is a series of, of cases uh, in under the, the powerful stewardship of Chief Justice John Marshall, in which the Federalist judiciary is going to assert its power vis-a-vis the other branches. So Marbury v. Madison, of course, one of the most famous cases. Um, It used to be thought that Marbury uh, instantiates judicial review. As our book suggests, uh, the notions of judicial review are floating around long before Marbury. Marbury certainly strengthens those ideas. But if you step back from the sort of classic law school narrative about the, the great chief justice and his his wonderful decision in Marbury, what you see the Marshall Court doing time and again is, is cleverly drafting an opinion which, which, if at all possible, asserts the power of the courts without ever having to challenge the executive or the legislative branch. So if you look doctrinally, the Marshall Court looks like a fairly powerful institution. But time and again, if you look at the facts on the ground, the 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 pronouncements of the court are always um, done in such a way that the court doesn't have to put a lot of uh, capital on the line to enforce decisions. And uh, Stuart v. Laird, uh, w- which it in part involves uh, judges having to write circuit again, which is something judges are not very fond of doing, is part of this Jeffersonian effort to scale back the power of the judiciary And rather than confront Jefferson, the court acquiesces. So again, you have this, um, the court is not challenging the other branches, but by doing so in a clever way, they at least are not caving to the other branches. So they, they gain small victories for the court and doctrinal victories for the court, but never have to put uh, themselves in a situation where they will, where we'll have a constitutional crisis where 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 the dictate where a court is issuing a ruling and the and the federal government is not willing to enforce it how did the yazoo controversy and chosen president in the 1810 Fletcher v Peck case pit political and legislative efforts to settle constitutional questions against judicial efforts to claim a monopoly on such questions which were over federal sovereignty and common law constitutionalism Well, that's a great question, which touches back on the idea of federalist legalism. Uh, We have a fundamental tension running throughout this period where legislatures want to maximize their ability to implement political solutions. And in sometimes those political solutions will trench on property rights. The Yazoo case is perhaps the greatest example of that, but but the uh, Dartmouth College case further on down the road 
uh, will also implicate some of the same issues. But essentially, in Yazoo, you have corrupt uh, legislatures handing out uh, land patents, and then you have a subsequent legislature saying, well, this thing is just rotten to the core, so we will then, by legislative act, set the record straight. But of course, once you have a contract, uh, one of the things the Constitution clearly does is protect the rights of contract. So the court is stepping in to enforce rights of contract and to assert these fundamental common law ideas uh, about contract law and to insulate uh, contractual arrangements from potential interference from legislative bodies. So in part, the Federalists are committed to the idea that in its sphere, uh, which includes contracts and traditional legal matters such as contracts, the legislatures cannot interfere. And of course, this runs counter to the sort of more populist strain among Jeffersonians who believe it's perfectly okay for legislatures to occasionally act from principles of justice and equity. Uh, and if that involves stepping on a few toes, well, so be it. How and why did the 1803 Louisiana Purchase, the Essex Junto, the Black Laws, and 1807 Embargo Act debates, which included a couple uh, court cases, expose the, uh, co- the paradoxes of Jeffersonian constitutionalism? And on that note, how did Madison's Federalist 46 frame or presage the dissidents of New England state militias and Hartford Convention during the War of 1812? The Jeffersonian ascendancy has not received nearly enough uh, attention from constitutional and legal scholars. And one of the most interesting parts of the book, from my perspective, was digging into some of these constitutional moments and developments and seeing how much really was going on once you dug beneath the surface. So take the Louisiana Purchase. So the classic issue that you would debate in a sort of traditional, top-down, doctrinally driven constitutional law course, or even constitutional history course, deals with the constitutionality of purchasing territory, which is not uh, expressly provided for in the Constitution. And you know, does this force Jefferson into a choice between uh, his desire to preserve the Yeoman Republic and his commitment to a theory of strict construction? And that is, of course, an important and interesting issue. But from my point of view, what really emerged as most interesting about the Louisiana Purchase is the way that it forces Jefferson and other Americans to deal with race. And because Louisiana is really a multiracial society, and there is a significant uh, free black community. And what we see is Louisiana is the path not taken. Louisiana provides the model for America to create a multiracial society. And Jefferson, uh, in particular, is absolutely committed to making sure that doesn't happen. And he does everything in his power to restrict um, the rights of these free blacks in Louisiana. And he wants to make sure that Louisiana remain, the territories of the Louisiana Purchase remain uh, a place for white yeoman uh, persons of European descent and those Indians who are willing to convert and assimilate to expand the yeoman republic. So. That's what's, for me, so fascinating about the Louisiana Purchase. Um, The embargo debates, uh, which uh, are a result of, again, the constant uh, tensions that are generated by European politics, whose ripple effect invariably involves America, 
you're dealing with the Napoleonic era and you're dealing with, uh, once again, Britain and France uh, wanting to further their own agendas and America's caught in the middle. And at the very beginning, America finds this congenial by remaining neutral. They can trade with both sides. But of course, neither side is very eager to honor American neutrality. So Jefferson decides he's going to enact an embargo and get American uh, commerce out of uh, harm's way. This, of course, produces catastrophic results to the American economy, particularly in New England, where trade is so important. And you see widespread smuggling and civil disobedience. And interesting, you have Jefferson, who, as an opposition leader, was always pointing a finger at uh, the overbearing power of the federal government, using power, uh, presidential power, in a quite... uh, robust manner. Um, And some of these issues fall before federal courts. And indeed, some of them actually uh, involve newly appointed justices that Jefferson has appointed to the court. And what's so interesting is that the court really uh, stands by its institutional uh, authority and refuses to cave to Jefferson and allow him to do everything he wants. Like the Gilchrist case, deals with a a ship that is impounded. And uh, it's a technical issue, but basically Jefferson oversteps the mark. The the local customs official had the power to impound the ship, but by sort of getting involved in micromanaging, Jefferson provides an opportunity for the ship owner to bring his case uh, before the federal courts who say that Jefferson has no authority to impound that ship. Uh, and so, again, you have this fascinating instance where um, the federal courts seem to be asserting their own rights, uh, but they're doing so in a way that's extremely popular, at least in the port uh, of Charleston, which is, I believe, where the ship was impounded. Uh, and so, again, the facts on the ground look very different than the strictly doctrinal uh, aspects of the decision, which seem to embrace a fairly profound uh, view of judicial authority. Uh, But essentially, they're letting uh, a person go who, if they had tried to keep that person, they would have faced a lot of pushback. And U.S. v. Hoxie is a a fascinating case because Jefferson wants to expand the idea of treason to include people who are disobeying uh, the embargo. And again, the federal courts say that's not – treason is defined in the Constitution very clearly, simply – stealing a load of wood that has been impounded can't in any way, shape, or form be understood to be treasonous. So uh, those cases, which don't get a lot of play typically, are really fascinating because they show the complexity of the period and the profound tensions in the era, and and really the fact that uh, uh, this martial court is not nearly as powerful as it looks in the traditional accounts, if you solely look at the words on the page, if you don't dig deeper into the context. How and why did James Madison's 1790s theory of constitutional liquidation contribute to his later 1811 support for the uh, bank rechartering and his veto of the bonus bill? Also, why did President Monroe not wish to expand congressional sovereignty for internal improvements? So Madison, of course, lives a very long life and is one of the most fascinating figures uh, in this period. And early on, Madison uh, articulates his theory of constitutional interpretation, which focuses heavily on 
what the ratification conventions thought the meaning of the Constitution was. Faced with uh, a very different chain set of circumstances um, and the fact that the bank, which he had opposed in the 1790s, is now absolutely essential to the American economy and has expanded and is no longer as closely identified with a single region of the nation, Madison comes to view the bank in a very different light. And um, he essentially argues that the bank, although once probably an unconstitutional exercise of constitutional uh, authority, has become over time recognized as a legitimate uh, constitutional enterprise. And he had earlier uh, always suggested that the Constitution could never be interpreted in such a way that um, the four corners of the page would solve every issue. He had always thought that language was much more slippery uh, and that there would always be a need for what he called liquidation of meaning by the courts. And so clearly uh, by the middle of the 19th, oh, sorry, by the first decade of the 19th century, He's beginning to embrace a much more common law and evolutionary theory of constitutional meaning, one that is less originalist, to use a somewhat anachronistic modern term, but a term that has a lot of uh, significance in contemporary constitutional debate. Uh, he's looking far, far more at the way the different branches of government and the people themselves have um, basically taken the constitution and molded it to the realities of American, the American experience. So that's a quite significant um, evolution in his thinking. And again, it, it just underscores how different a genuinely textured historical study of these events uh, can be and how different it is from the sort of law office histories and originalist studies you see so often by constitutional law professors who, who, who really, uh, take the words and do not pay nearly enough attention to the history in which those words were uttered. In a succinct manner, please explain how the 1793 Fugitive Slave Act, Southern acquiescence to the 1787 Northwest Ordinance, international slave trade bans as well as diffusion, uh, American colonization society lobbying for federal appropriations, and even the Missouri crisis, how did these all, or one, spark a sectional constitutional politics? So one of the looming um, threats to the American polity and to the American constitutional order is the danger that slavery will divide the nation. And the, the framers of the Constitution, as we've already discussed, uh, build in a certain ambiguity and they finesse a large number of things. One thing that they absolutely have to include, which they but they can't um, include it by name, is some provision to deal with the potentiality of, of runaway slaves um, using the federal system to find safe haven. Uh, if, if that were allowed to go unchecked, it would undermine the institution of slavery. So the Constitution itself clearly um, contemplates the possibility that you can pass uh, quite stringent uh, laws to enforce the return of fugitive slaves. Uh, at the point where you start seeing those kind of laws, uh, that has a, the unintended consequence of making things worse because you are now saying to people living in states that have either abolished slavery or that have set on the path of gradual abolition, 
that you have a constitutional and legal obligation to support slavery by returning an escaped slave. So this problem of the fugitive slaves really heats up the issue of slavery. And of course, the other uh, unintended consequence uh, is bringing all that new territory into America through the Louisiana Purchase. Jefferson thought he would solve America's problem by having enough land to the thousandth generation. But of course, what it does is it brings in lots of new land that can be used for slave agriculture. And of course, with the development of the cotton gin, cotton agriculture is slowly becoming much more profitable. So rather than solve America's uh, problems, uh, the, the Louisiana Purchase exacerbates them in an interesting way. And of course, the Missouri crisis is the first moment where uh, that crisis comes to the very center of American politics, uh, so much so that, that that Jefferson coins that famous metaphor uh, where he describes the Missouri crisis as that fire bell in the night, uh, a metaphor that you know may be hard for many modern Americans to appreciate because remember, Jefferson is the master of Monticello. He's living on the top of a mountain surrounded by slaves. Hearing a fire bell in the night is perhaps the most uh, terrifying thing because it means your whole life is about to go up in flames and you have to count on your slaves to help you. Uh, and it is possible that that fire may have been an arson committed by a slave. So um, the metaphor of the, the fire bell in the night and the Missouri crisis uh, is well worth uh, pausing over. It's a, it's a great example of what a what an incredible uh, stylist and literary gift Jefferson had. Uh, and it's also a really concise way of capturing how the Missouri crisis uh, crystallizes these tensions and, and really is the starting point of a whole new chapter in American political and constitutional development. How and why did Martin Van Buren and the Bucktail 1821 New York Constitutional Convention's proposals, particularly free black tax exemptions and the extension of suffrage to all white males, generate transsectional bonds of white democracy? So Van Buren is a fascinating um, character, and it's unfortunate we don't have my co-author, Jerry Leonard, who really is the Jacksonian expert uh, in the pair of us. But uh, still, I think there's no question that Van Buren is the key political player for the next phase of American political and constitutional development. He's the master of transforming what is an incipient partisan culture into a full-fledged political party and um, recognizes that the only way for the opposition to achieve its goals is to embrace uh, the rise of party and to use party as a means of advancing their agenda. And essentially, uh, as the New York Constitutional Convention makes clear, uh, Van Buren and this new emerging Jacksonian democratic movement uh, is built on racial exclusion. It's racial exclusion of African Americans, and it's uh, the expulsion of uh, of the indigenous population uh, who are still clinging uh, to an existence on the edge of the eastern seaboard. Um, but now, with this new democratic movement. Uh, they are going to unite the New York working class and Southern slaveholders. They're going to do it 
with a, a racially charged rhetoric. Um, you know, free African Americans are not going to be taking jobs from 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 New York laborers, and uh, people like the Cherokee are not going to stand in the way of Southern planters and farmers from gaining access to the land they need to uh, maintain their agrarian yeoman republic. So the deal is struck and the, and the coalition is, is created. And Van Buren is the theorist who is absolutely central to visualizing how this new Jacksonian democracy will um, revive aspects of the old Jeffersonian coalition, but put it on a much firmer and a much more solid foundation. Now, there's a litany of Supreme Court cases around 1816, um, Martin versus uh, Hunter's Lessee, uh, the Dartmouth case that you alluded to, Ogden v. Saunders, uh, uh, Mullock versus Maryland, and Osborne. How did all of these, or one, spur Supreme Court supremacy founded in common law principles? In addition, how did these decisions correspond with Native American case law, particularly the 1832 Worcester versus Georgia uh, case, and ultimately that pardon? Please be sure to address in your response Justice John Marshall's approach to the doctrine of discovery and preemption rights in the Johnson case. So this is oftentimes described as sort of the golden era of the Marshall Court. And and as you suggest, there are a series of very, very famous cases um, that the Marshall Court hands down. And these all seem to support the the idea that the Marshall Court is flexing its judicial muscle, it's becoming a much more respected and powerful institution. And, and, and that is certainly true in some respects, but it also, um, these, these cases testify the fact that those fundamental tensions between a more populist vision of the law, between a vision of legislative supremacy, uh, a legislative supremacy that extends even to the ability to revoke a contract as uh, as is, or a, a charter, as is the case in the Dartmouth College case, those issues have not um, have not gone away. And although Marshall and the court are trying to uh, put their imprimatur behind their vision of this federalist legalism, this idea that common law principles of contract cannot be usurped by legislatures. Um, the battle is clearly not completely over yet. Uh, McCulloch v. Maryland, which pits the state of Maryland uh, against the federal government, and Marshall articulates uh, an essentially kind of a neo-Hamiltonian vision of the power of the federal government, uh, is extremely controversial. And Marshall takes the unexpected and controversial step of actually having to write synonymously to defend the decision because there's so much hostility to it. So again, you know, strictly looking at the decision, it, you know, it is probably Marshall's greatest decision. And the language uh, from that decision is quoted time and again in a variety of different contexts in American law. But again, in the rich context uh, of history, uh, Marshall's confidence and assertion of the power of the courts to resolve uh, issues such as uh, the line separating federal and state authority is a lot more tenuous on the ground. Um, so I think it's a, it's a great example of how the approach of this book, which seeks both to acknowledge the traditional court-centered narrative, but whenever possible to put that court-centered narrative in a broader context so that we see what's going on outside the courts, and most importantly, how what's going on outside the courts is interacting 
with a court. That's the kind of top-down, bottom-up constitutional history that this book aims to provide a model for. How and why did Andrew Jackson's campaign advisor, Martin Van Buren, who we talked about earlier, hope to reorganize what Van Buren described as the old Republican Party into the 1828 Democratic Party? And did this platform harken back to and or diverge from Democratic-Republican ideology? So I think one of the one of the central arguments of the book, and it was interesting because Jerry's focus has always been on parties and the way parties uh, and partisanship, the way that uh, impacts American law. And my focus has been a little bit less on party and more on sort of popular constitutionalism and the way that uh, ideology and print culture uh, shape constitutional political debates. And when we were trying to think about this book, we're trying to think about what's the master narrative. We can't have both those narratives uh, tie the book together, which is the narrative that makes the most sense ultimately, particularly if this is a book that has to reach an audience of students as well as uh, lawyers and professors and generally interested readers. And we settled on a narrative that emerges uh, clearly from Jerry's work in which you have the militantly anti-party founding generation slowly dragged, kicking and screaming into the world of full-blown party politics by the Jacksonian era. Uh, the, the Jeffersonian opposition puts a lot of faith in the states. They put a lot of faith in the press. They put faith in democratic Republican societies. They put faith in all kinds of institutional and political mechanisms to check the Hamiltonian Federalist agenda. And Hamilton beats them at every turn in the 1790s. Uh, so it's not until that the Democrats or the Repu- old the Democratic Republicans morph into the Democratic Party of Van Buren and Jackson that they find out uh, that the answer to their problem is to embrace party politics, to build a party machine, to use party to advance their political and legal agenda. And at that moment, the Founders' Constitution, with its militant anti-partisanship and its effort to build this Enlightenment uh, clock, this great machine of checks and balances, has to confront a new era of partisanship. And it accommodates it in a variety of ways, but we're no longer living in the, in the, with the Founders' Constitution at that moment. And in a way, all of modern American politics and law uh, although we often argue about the founders because of originalism, it's really this Jacksonian moment that sets us on the path to a distinctly modern type of constitutional culture. Uh, and it's one of the great ironies that that we spend so much time on the founders when, in fact, the really important historical story is the unraveling of the founders' vision of the Constitution and its replacement by this uh, populist democratic vision of the Jacksonian Democrats, but a vision that is far more racist and exclusionary uh, than the founders' vision, which, although certainly elitist, uh, had at least enough ambiguity to accommodate at least African-Americans and women of property. But by the era of the Jacksonian period, it really is a white man's democracy that has triumphed. I have a final question. What's going on with you next? Are there any uh, projects that you're working on that you can uh, disclose to us? So the new book that I I, I 
am writing and I have a contract for with Oxford University Press. I literally sent the page proofs for this book out and sent the book proposal out the next day uh, over uh, about a year ago. It's called The Pistol and the Whip, uh, uh, Slavery, Abolition, and the Origins, the Forgotten Origins of Gun Rights in America. And what it looks at is the way that uh, the debate between Southern slaveholding judges and Northern abolitionists about the role of violence and particularly firearms and violence impacts debates over uh, guns, gun regulation, the Second Amendment, that that really is where our modern uh, intense controversy over guns comes from. Again, because of originalism, there's a there's a tendency to sort of obsess about the Second Amendment and the founders. But uh, an earlier book I wrote on the history of the Second Amendment, I became convinced that the, the really important and interesting story uh, starts in the Jacksonian period. So this book sort of uh, is, a, is, a, is a great place to, to uh, tee up that next project where it can really do a deep dive into how the dynamics of this Jacksonian debate really uh, sets up a debate over everything from stand your ground to the right to carry firearms in public to uh, the kinds of uh, regulations consistent with the idea of liberty. All that stuff that we're that we're debating now, I find, has very little to do with the 18th century, but is extremely uh, resonant with the debates of the antebellum period. Well, we hope you remember new books in history for that uh, forthcoming project. Well, yes, I hope you'll have me back. Thank you for such great questions. I We probably will. So uh, the book is The Partisan Republic, Democracy, Exclusion, and the Fall of the Founders' Constitution, 1780s to 1830s, uh, by Jerry Leonard and uh, Professor Cornell. Um, out earlier this year by Cambridge University Press. This is Ryan Tripp on behalf of Professor Cornell and New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Please tune in next time.